Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. The internet has explored, exploded with people sharing teaching ideas, of course, myself being one of them. And it's mm. absolutely fabulous and hard at the same time because now we have so much that it feels like it's just coming at you from left and right. Maybe you recognize yourself in this scene. In an effort to engage your music students and teach concepts in creative ways, you scour the internet for games and worksheets and printables that will make your lessons fun. But in this process, you get overwhelmed and disorganized. Well, Amy Chaplin is to the rescue. In her remarkably organized and enthusiastic way, Amy has curated the wonderful offerings of the internet and shares tips and tricks for keeping all of those games and principles easy to find and easy to use. This episode is all about keeping the fun without the frustration. Well, I started piano lessons when I was seven, I believe, with a local teacher who lived less than 10 minutes away, so it was pretty convenient. My mom actually took me to a neighbor's house about two miles away every single day to practice for a year (laughs) until they knew that I liked it. So yeah, I really... um, I'm like happy that my my parents had that dedication to do that for me. But I think a little bit of also was, you know, making sure they could afford a piano and that I was going to stick with it, you know. So, Mm -hmm. but it worked out great. Uh, I was a lady from our church and she was happy to have me come, you know, listen to me play. I don't like remember a whole lot about my early days of music lessons, except that, you know, I learned from the Bastion method. And like most kids, I didn't always love practicing. (laughs) I do remember in my first or second year of lessons, um, one time getting... On off the piano bench and running out of church in tears the very first time that I ever tried to play a song in church because I messed up. That is just oh. one memory that has always stuck with me. We all have those memories, don't we? At some point, <laughs> yes. running yes. running off the well, stage memory. It's like the only one. <laughs> <laughs> then once I hit middle school, the, that teacher didn't feel that she could take me any further, so she passed me on. So my mom drove me once a week. 30 minutes away now for a few years to take me to a college music student who is the daughter of an actual piano teacher whose studio was full. She couldn't take me. So she just had my daughter teach uh, her daughter, teach me. And a few, a few years after that, kind of the same thing happened. She passed me on and we went, then went 50 minutes away to a teacher (laughs) that took me through my middle school, high school days and helped me into college auditions. And, you know, the main thing I remember from those days was, honestly, I feel like bad saying it out loud, but I didn't love playing classical music. I just did it because I trusted my teacher and that's, you know, what I had to do. But I don't like super recall loving it. I was just kind of compliant. I do recall a lot of my lessons as a child were very traditional. You know, I learned to read music using Bastion's multi-key method and using, I read music well because of that. And I'm thankful for that. Um, now granted, I don't remember like a whole lot of details about my childhood music teachers and what we did in lessons, but I don't recall like doing a lot of things like improvising or composing or learning how to play chords. Um, you know, considering I, once I went to college, I really couldn't easily transpose a simple piece of music or play from a chord chart. So I think my lessons were probably fairly traditional, (laughs) even though Mm -hmm. I don't remember a whole lot. Um, nothing against any of my teachers at all. I had wonderful teachers growing up, but that's what lessons were like. And I think it is like that for a lot of people. Yeah. In reflection. Um, but luckily, my experiences and personal shortcomings as a pianist myself is what's kind of driven me in my own teaching. Interesting. Yes. That's, and I love that you mentioned, you know, the specific driving times 
yeah. that your mom put in because you yeah. know I, I'm I'm doing that for my kids right now, and I, I think probably a lot of listeners are parents themselves who have sacrificed for their kids' lessons. And I wonder. I mean, you know, it, it would be funny to see if there is there is there a, a relationship, a correlation, but for the yeah. kid between how much they know their parent is driving and, and sacrificing to get them to these lessons, and yes, versus absolutely. how much they're actually practicing and taking it seriously, right? I mean, yep. there might be yeah. some sort of correlation there. And it's nice looking back and seeing that that's what your parents did for you. And like, that was a lot, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I have similar memories. I grew up in New York City, so I remember the amount of the cab fare that it cost <laughs> in the taxi to drive yeah. from my apartment to my piano teacher's apartment. Yeah, uh, It was the same every single week. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your studio now. So you you teach piano. What styles do you teach? It sounds like you're you're teaching uh, style and the methods that you teach was in, are informed by what you, your experience as a child yourself. Yeah. So I'm 100% piano, um, 100% piano teacher. I've done a little beginning ukulele lessons as well, but that comes and goes just as people inquire about it. Funny Mm -hmm. thing, I'll kind of give a little side tangent here. That started um, as just a way of me thinking outside the box. I had one of my piano students whose parent asked me about ukulele teachers. She wanted to, she got a ukulele for her birthday. She wanted to learn. And instead of me saying, okay, hey, why don't you drive 45 minutes to Sweetwater to find a ukulele teacher? I thought, hey, I could do that. Yeah. (laughs) So, and so, and I told the parent, I was completely upfront. I said, hey, I would learn alongside her. And she thought that was great. She was happy to do that. So Anyways, that's a good, you know, think outside the box and being <laughs> owning Love your own it. studio kind of a thing. But I currently teach around 25 students of all ages from beginners. I will take as young as preschool age through late intermediate, early advanced students. Um, they're all 40 minute lessons right now. I've done the 30 minute thing, but I've really found 40 minute lessons are a great balance. Gives you time for younger kids to play games and for the more intermediate students to have that extra time without having to like jump to the hour lesson yet. So it's just a good across the, the whole board. I've taught as many as 45 students, but that was when I offered 30 minute lessons and I had some like group classes going on. It didn't really last very long though, because it was way too much mentally. I mean, that is a lot of students Yeah, and um, I don't know, 25 is like 20 to 25 is really my happy place, especially now that I've got like my blog and the speaking and consulting and the new podcast I'm doing, the Piano Pantry podcast, which I'll throw in a little <laughs> shout out for yeah. going on. Um, yeah. So well, tell us a little bit more about all of those other endeavors, because I know that you are very busy on many fronts, really investing in the, the music teacher community generally. Well, you know, I'm, I, I consider myself an idea person. If you want to brainstorm and think outside the box and get feedback, I'm your girl. I love like thinking about how to do things better, how to improve processes and just like even like the ukulele thing, like thinking outside the box and trying new things. So I opened my studio back in 20, oh shoot, 2011. 2011. I'm saying full-time piano studio, basically. Basically, um, I had spent six years then establishing that business in my community, and I just suddenly felt inspired to do something beyond teaching. I felt like I saw teachers struggling with things that I could help with, and I just felt like I needed an outlet, like a, almost a creative outlet um, for myself as well. So I started the Piano Pantry blog back in 2016. And did that for a few years. That was a great start to that. Now, the year prior to that, I gave my first presentation 
at the Indiana Music Teachers Association conference, which was another kind of like big step. I remember like the year before that thinking I could never, you know, present anything to teachers. I have nothing to say or, you know, that would be too scary. And then suddenly I had an idea and I was like, okay, I'm going to try this. And it was terrifying. Um, But yeah, it was a great experience. And after that, it would, you know, went really well. And thanks to a colleague's help, I actually submitted my name for the first time and got a presentation accepted at a national conference, which was actually ultimately the same month I started my blog back in 2016. And it's kind of just spiraled from there. I enjoy um, the variety that, you know, teaching and blogging and the speaking has given for several years. It's fun to have the opportunity to get to like talk to different teacher groups around the country. And it's a little opportunity to travel sometimes. Like most recently I got to go to Virginia Beach. But, you know, online webinars have been really popular as well. Um, After that, kind of the next natural step here recently has been to offer consulting. And that has evolved as I started to get more requests from teachers via email, just little, you know, questions about help or how do you do this? Or I saw you do this. Do you have any advice? And as you know, like email replies with any kind of advice, even little short bits can take quite a bit of time. And I wanted to be able to have an opportunity to give teachers an option for more time and more help um, than I could just give in like a simple email. So that's kind of where the consulting started. And then the most recent venture uh, has been the Piano Pantry podcast, which I just launched in January. So we're today, number episode number seven, just published. And the goal there is just to offer teachers short little 10 to 15 minute snippets each week of all things related to independent music teacher life from organizing our music studios to getting dinner on the table because I like to cook. So sometimes we chat about things like that and all that comes between. So it's kind of a melting pot of living the piano teacher or the music teacher, independent music teacher life. So the podcast has been a fun new way to connect with music teaching community, as I'm sure you're experiencing here at the Duet Partner Podcast as well. (laughs) Exactly. But I think your journey epitomizes what I love about music teachers, which is that sort of sense of continuing expansion of your skill set, right? And and continually exploring new ways to to inspire a love of music and to build your own... um, you know, connections with the community and to build the character of your students, all of those, all of those good things that music teachers do so well, you've, you really epitomize that. So um, thanks for sharing that, that journey with us. Um, And we're excited. Yeah. We're excited to be partnering with you here at, at uh, Duet. So um, we have a specific topic that we're going to be delving into today, which you're, you know, particularly well-equipped to, to address, which is how can teachers effectively organize and use digital resources? So you already mentioned, Amy, that, that what you think one of your skills is this idea of brainstorming ways to be more efficient and to be more effective and more organized. And um, as we know, you know, the, the world of information available to music teachers these days um, is massive. You know, we have so much available to us just through our, our, our click of our computer mouse repertoire, resources, games, activities, and not to mention studio management tools like Duet. Yes. And um, you've heard of people talking about getting free downloads and resources and then not feeling like they can utilize them because yes. they can't <laughs> find them or they're not organized properly or they just have so much that it's overwhelming. Um so let's talk about how to take a more minimalist approach and hone in on those essential tools and skills. So Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. What what have you seen um, in the proliferation of online teaching tools to help 
independent music teachers. Um, what you've you've had your eye on this industry for a while now. What do you what do you see that's out there? Well, there's. Um, I remember in my very early teaching days, I like to reflect back sometimes to kind of see where we've come. <laughs> when I started teaching piano, like out of high school back in like 2000, I took on a few private students, and you know, I was teaching out of my parents' house, and I recall. At the time, I was trying to think back, like I remember having my own self-knowledge, like my own piano lesson experience and the music that you were teaching the student. But, you know, games at the piano were not something that I had ever put much thought into or like, you know, worksheets or like specific activities outside of just like a theory book or something. Um, The first recollection I have of of like maybe growing in my desire to improve as a teacher and seeing other teachers starting to share online um, was, I don't know, maybe back in 2005-ish. And you had teachers like Susan Parody and Natalie Weber at Music Matters blog. They are kind of what first led me to realize that teaching piano was more than just passing on the knowledge that I had necessarily. (laughs) It could be more fun and interactive. And they were sharing free printables and such to help. You know, since then, we've got more people involved here and in those things, um, which is something I'll talk about here in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've, you've talked about some of their, their drawbacks. And as you say, we're going to address those a little bit more uh, in the future, but what are some of the favorite offerings that you've discovered uh, in this survey of, of everything that's out there for music teachers <laughs> these days? Well, I'll just say, first I mean, of all, nobody is paying me to say their name. <laughs> yes. And you've mentioned a couple of names already. Yes. But, yes, um, yeah. and, and maybe more than even names, like what do you, what are some of the concepts that you think work best that you found to be most effective in your, in your own lesson experience? Um, well, first of all, you know, I, I think with resources, you have to think about, you know, what are, what are your goals? Where are you, what are you looking for? Um, I think, you have to also consider like what age of students that you have as well. Are you looking for resources for preschoolers or for, you know, older students that are, that are engaging? Um, I think games are really wonderful way for students to connect what, what they're learning in the music that they're playing and having, you know, a different outlet, you know, Leela Viss is always big, like big on um, off bench activities, right. Getting off the bench and playing games and doing activities and, and movement and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of great people that have lots of games out there you can download for free. And some are ones that you can purchase. I mentioned Susan Parody, Melody Payne. Um, people like even Melody Payne are bringing on other teachers that don't maybe have their own website. And they're sharing resources, you know, together on that website. Um, same thing goes for Tim Topham, uh, the uh, new Top Music Marketplace. Also mm-hmm. another great place for people that maybe don't have their own website, especially to be able to sell their products. Um, Natalie Weber, as I mentioned, Music Matters blog, Um, Wendy Stevens at Compose Create. She shares a lot. uh, She's done a lot in the past on composing. She's got a lot of great rhythm resources. Jennifer Fox, Music Educator Resources. Um, People have, you know, now we're getting like online products. There's a lot of great like, um, what do they call them? Escape rooms. You know, they're creating in Mm -hmm. Google Forms and stuff where kids can have these fun little games, even online. So I think we have to definitely, you know, think about what what is it that we're after? What kinds of products are we looking for for our own studios? Um, Membership sites, even, you know, you've got like Nicola Keaton, Vibrant Music Teaching Studio. Nicola is like a very um, she was a design person in a past career, I think. So her stuff is very just colorful and vibrant and fun. And she's really good at designing fun games. yeah. You know, and there's a lot of things like teachers say you you teach using the wonder keys method. Sometimes methods have resources that go along with that 
with that method book as well. Or Piano Safari, they have little cards you can download for teaching a piece. Um, so, you know, yeah. while it's amazing, we have so many people sharing so many resources. This, again, is the point that it becomes overwhelming. Um, you know, personally, like I follow 75, I would say, music teaching oh. websites on my RSS oh, wow. reader. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, RSS reader is a great way to like follow a bunch of sites and, yeah. you know, take in new content and seeing what's out there and being to easily scroll through it and not be overwhelmed by it. Um, but yeah, like I said, a lot of the games that you choose have to do more based on your teaching philosophy, um, what what works best for your students. Well, um, tell me tell me a little bit about your teaching philosophy. I mean, what what do you see these games? How do you see these games um, interact with your philosophy? How do how do they really help you yeah. be the kind of teacher you want to be? And and what kind of response do you see in your students compared to when you first started out and maybe weren't using these kinds of games? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, kids, once they know that you'll do games, I get requests all the time. Can we play a game or can we play that game that we did last week? You know, and they get excited about that. And I think that's one way that you can, you know, get excitement in a lesson or maybe if a student has come to a, a lesson and they're not really prepared. You know, it's I think it's very easy sometimes for teachers to feel frustrated by that. Well, they're not prepared. So now what are we going to do? You know, yeah. well, you can pull out games and you can still have great teaching moments um, with these activities. So a uh, few examples. So for me personally, like one thing, the one way that I've kind of been filtering things recently is in the last five years, I've been trying to learn more about audiation based teaching through music learning theory. Um, because of that, I've tried to maybe stop playing games that focus on traditional like intervallic based oral skills, specifically like asking students to identify a second or a third or a fourth mm -hmm. or so forth. And instead, I focus on Learn, learning activities where I can teach my students to hear tonal patterns, you know, based mm -hmm. on the tonic chord and then on the dominant and subdominant and so forth. So that's kind of one little way that I try to, you know, choose what activities I use in my lessons based on my teaching philosophy. Um, and you're saying that's, that some of those games meet match up with students' learning skills better than, than perhaps maybe some of the traditional approaches would. Well, it's just a philosophy of like how students learn music, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah. So, I mean, yes. Yeah. So like, I believe that, you know, teaching students to, students to hear patterns um, are, are more important than teaching mm -hmm. them to hear individual inter intervals. Right. Yeah. So, yes. Um, you and know, you can do, you can do that away from the keyboard. You're saying that, yeah, that's absolutely. something. Yeah. Yep. 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 So and what do you think about rewards? Do you have a do you have a philosophy around around you know what some people call bribes or rewards? Is well, that something that you're talking? <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, you know, I I believe that rewards. There's nothing wrong with them. I know there's you know there's, there's big intrinsic extrinsic motivation types of things mm -hmm. with rewards. Um, as far as like say practice incentives or you know whatnot. And I think that I kind of nailed down my belief on this when I read a mini essay from Piano Safari, where they talked about this and they talked about like giving stickers and, you know, letting students earn candy and stuff like that. And the idea was kind of like, I mean, we work and we earn money or yes. whatever, you know, and it's not just because, I mean, we're actually working towards something as well. And yes, it can still be for enjoyment, but we're getting a reward, reward out of that. So why not? You know, especially with the youngest little kids, like they can be really easily motivated Totally, <laughs> by getting a piece of candy or a sticker or whatever. So yeah, I've done like music money in the past with students where they, 
they can earn, you know, certain rewards for doing certain things. Like they get so much money, music money, mm-hmm. $5, say for practicing every single day of the week or something mm-hmm. like that. And then they pool their money and then they can buy stuff from a little shop. So yeah. I love it. I love it. And do you find that this approach in your lessons or using some of these games does motivate more practice during the week, but when they're not with you? Have you seen um, any sort of direct correlation in I don't in know if motivation? like doing it in the lesson necessarily motivates them during the week. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I see a correlation there, but I think it it's just it can be something that they can look forward to in the yeah. lesson specifically, yeah. you know. And they're excited to come to their lesson. And yes. I like what you said about, you know, if they're not prepared, then there's something else that the teacher has in her toolkit that she can pull out, right? Right, exactly. Um, so that she doesn't get frustrated. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes I'll even give them like options in lessons, you know, do you want to play this or do you want to play this? Like what sounds fun? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so how let's talk about organizing these resources. I mean, what mm-hmm. what do you do? A lot of these are digital, as you said. You've already mentioned your RSS feed. T- tell us a little bit more about your own approach to wrangling all of these options that are out there. Okay, so there's, I think, three important layers that we have to think about when we're organizing digital resources and games and downloads and PDFs. So the first is the physical location of the game. So say you you download it, you print it out, you actually like, you have to consider how do I store them in my studio? The second thing is storing the actual file itself, like that you get, you know, the PDF, the digital file for later retrieval, or maybe it's something you purchase, but you don't actually want to like print out right away and cut up and everything. And then third is keeping track of everything that you actually have, like having a big picture of all the resources that you actually have in your possession. (laughs) So I think a lot of people consider the first point, like how do I just organize my physical games in my studio? But they often struggle to organize their actual digital files and because they just download them to like their download folder and then they can't find it and whatnot. So I think a lot of people consider the first point about like how they store their files in a physical location but they don't always think about like the big picture of like how much stuff do they actually have. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, I experienced that. I was trying to organize my group classes and lesson plan. And I kept like having to get up and go look at like my drawer of, of games. Okay. What do I have for teaching rhythm or, you know, dotted quarter note rhythms or whatever. And so mm-hmm. I was finally like, I'm tired of getting up and trying to see what I have. I'm like, I need to just look at a sheet and see what do I have that can teach these concepts. So I put together like a, what I call my master list of manipulatives, games, and activities. Mm -hmm. And actually I have this on my blog. It's a free resource. Teachers can also look at it themselves. We can link to it in the show notes or something like that. But teachers can create their own, like go through your stuff and like write down what games do you have that relate to eighth, like learning eighth notes or that relate to learning um, tonic and dominant chords or that relate to note names, like maybe, you know, notes on the staff or teaching ledger lines or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the next then thing is considering the digital location. So when you download something, like I said, don't just download it to your downloads folder. Like I think it's really important for us to have some kind of method to how we organize our digital files. I like to think about big picture things. So I like to start with like my personal and then I have a file for studio organization and then piano pantry stuff. And then Mm -hmm. inside of each one, then you kind of tier from there. So go inside your studio and then maybe you have 10 folders, like one for teaching games and activities, one for studio management, one for um, 
method materials and uh, curriculum lesson plans. So, you know, go into then your studio games folder. And then from there, you know, you have like a folder for rhythm games, a folder for interval games, a folder Mm -hmm. for worksheets, different things like that. And even more so from there, I think it's important for us to have a consistent way of labeling file names. Like I never leave the file name the way it is when I download it. So I download it and then I will rename the file in a way that makes sense to me. For example, Mm -hmm. I like to um, label game files, game, and then like underscore, and then the name of the game, and then underscore, and then the name of the person that I got it from. And doing this allows you to really be able to see, like it will level all of your games in your your digital you know file explorer so that you can mm-hmm. see oh i've got 10 games on rhythm and they all you know they they line up alphabetically basically yeah is the point you know and then you can also your search engine can help you so maybe you're trying to find a game and you can't find it if you just type in the name of something like i know say it was from wendy stevens or i know this game was about dotted quarter notes if you just type in your search bar and you have your file well labeled you can easily retrieve you know files like that yeah. So that's really important. And then lastly, the physical storage. So I like to use file drawers myself. I keep like four of them. I have um, like an introductory general, which is basically like keyboard to topography and some of the basic things like learning about the piano. I have a drawer for rhythm games and activities, a drawer for note names and a drawer for intervals. So, and then I just use file folders and I actually color the tab of the file folder so that it kind of looks like the game itself. It's a little visual for me to look inside the drawer and be like, oh yeah, that's that game. You know, instead of just writing the name of the game, I know it's a little crazy, but it actually really works. Um, That's awesome. So I know a lot of teachers also use, and I sometimes also use these, they're like um, large clear plastic manila folders. I shouldn't say manila, they're clear, but then it's like a pouch basically. I got that idea from Nicola Canton on Vibrant Music Teaching. She uses um, a lot of these for her game storage. And they're, they're, they can be expandable and they're just like an, an envelope and you can put like the game board in there and flashcards and everything that goes with it in one location. It keeps it Yeah, together. and they fit into your, into your file drawer, right? Yep. You can just yep. slip them in. Yeah. Yep. So um, other things I've seen teachers do that are great, like pencil boxes for flashcards, like those little, you know, plastic pencil mm-hmm. boxes. I use a lot of plastic baggies to just put, you know, again, flashcards or things that go with games in them, portable tubs, things like that. So the main thing is just like keep them easily retrievable and, you know, have some kind of consistent way of storing them both physically and digitally. Yeah. I'll mention here that Duet does have a digital file storage system in our Duet accounts, right? So if any of our Duet subscribers are listening, you can use your file storage systems to, to store files just the way Amy described. But how do you decide, Amy, what you're going to turn into a physical game. And, you know, I mean, how do you decide what you're actually going to invest in printing out and cutting and laminating and whatever it is? I mean, because that can be time consuming and, and financially consuming too, right. To be printing all of that out. Um, so obviously some of these things lend themselves to digital format, um, and don't all need to be in physical format, but how, yeah, I mean, do you, how, how do you decide, Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's a matter of like, what do I need? So if I'm like going out and seeking out games, there's so much stuff out there. Like just because something looks good or looks fun, I don't just automatically download it. And that's comes from like, you know, trying to to put a filter on (laughs) and to try Mm -hmm. to think, okay, do I really need this? Am I really going to use it? Um, 
So sometimes like throughout the year, I'll go and kind of take inventory of like, okay, what games do I have? Do I, you know, I don't have very many games say on sharps or flats. So, okay, I'm going to get another game for that. So I'm going to be very intentional about what types of games I'm going to, you know, allow myself to get and print. And also, you know, being very careful to not do a whole bunch at once. Like you said, it takes so much time. And I've definitely learned that over the years. Like I've actually stopped laminating a lot of things because, you know, you have to cut out like the flashcards that you print out and all individually. And then you have to, you know, laminate them and you cut all those out. And I mean, that can take a couple of hours for just one game, you know? So, you know, it's easier. You just reprint it someday. If they go bad or they get destroyed, then just reprint them and cut them and, you know, you're good to go. So I think it's a matter of like not, allowing yourself to have too much and to not like do a whole bunch at once, you know? Mm -hmm. And I love that idea that the more organized you are, the more strategic you can be about filling in the holes. Yes. um, You know, where you, where you do specifically need to go out and proactively search for a game rather than just being reactive to everything that's coming through your inbox. Right. And And I can see like, you know, right now, like I have maybe say I've got five different listening sheets for when students perform for each other, you know, over the years. I'm like, I don't really need any more. So even if I see Mm -hmm. amazing ones, like it would have to be pretty amazing for me to, you know, download, but I, I try to not like be on the lookout for something like that because I'm like, I know I've got that covered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So Amy, tell us about the most influential teacher in your, in your life, your most influential music teacher in your life. What made them special? Well, looking back, you know, I think all of my teachers were special in their own way. Um, one thing that I feel like I look back and I see in all my teachers, and I did kind of mention this at the very beginning, um, and this is something I hope to emulate in myself as well, but they weren't afraid to step up and say, I can no longer teach you. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's time for you to move on. And they recognize that. And I think there's really yeah. great humility and strength in being able to say to a student, you need more and I can't give that to you. And I can't yeah. take you where I know you can go. So I really, you know, look back and I thank my all of my teachers that did that for me. Um, you know, that being said, the fact that I got an advanced degree in pedagogy and performance has helped me <laughs> not ever like feel strongly that I needed to pass on a student myself. I will say, except for a couple of instances in the last uh, 10 years, one of those instances, for example, was a student that wanted, she was really into jazz. And I kind of took her into the, like the intermediate level of playing repertoire and everything. And I tried to do as much as I could. Like we did a lot of audition based stuff and I taught her to play in, you know, all the different tonalities. She knows how to play in Aeolian and Lydian and Mixolydian and all that, but I just couldn't give her that jazz, you know, yeah. instruction that she, I know she would be so good at. So I passed her on to a teacher. And yeah, I think it's, that's one thing I've taken from my teachers in the past that I want to always try to be aware of in myself. Yeah. As far as the most yeah. influential teacher goes, I would definitely have to say uh, my piano pedagogy and applied piano studies teacher in my graduate days, Dr. Lori Roden at Ball State. The reason um, I feel like she was the most influential is that my undergraduate degree is in music education, not in piano performance at all. And I had to go back and I had taken like, you know, I did three years as a choral director originally after my music ed degree. And I had to, when I went back, I'd had basically a six year break uh, before I went to grad school. And not only was I not a piano performance major, but like I said, I've had that break. So she really like opened up my world um, to artistic playing and she really helped refine my own playing, which helped open up my eyes to, you know, then in turn teaching my students better, Um, you know, and she made me realize that 
piano teaching is definitely an art <laughs> and not just, you know, it doesn't have to be just traditional, but there's a lot more to it. So love it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Duet Partner Podcast. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at duetpartner.com.